Happy Monday. Welcome into NSN Daily. Chris Murray, I'm Brian Samudio. Anthony Resnick flying the plane behind the scenes. Uh, what a wild Sunday in the National Football League. We'll get into, into that here in a second. If you're uh, fans of a team down south, you're probably feeling pretty good. If you're fans of a team in Santa Clara, you don't want to talk about it. And uh, and trust me, I I feel your sentiments right now. Um, we'll continue Chris's position breakdown of uh, Wolfpack football, get into the running back position, which may be this tandem, Chris, may be the best in the Mountain West Conference. This is a really good tandem of running backs here. Reno 1868 with a dominating performance on Saturday night. They advance in the playoffs, and uh, and Chris's Lakers are NBA champions. And uh, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do what a member of our team said this morning and put an asterisk on it. I'm not going to do it. They made it through. As much as I'm not a Laker fan, they are champions, and I'm not going to put an asterisk. On it, and 2020 took another Hall of Fame legend from us. Uh, it's disappointing, but it is what it is. Let's get to the NFL, Chris. R- Raiders beat the Chiefs mm-hmm. on the road. I mean, and and in literally almost I won't say dominating fashion, but the Chiefs were handled pretty well at home on Sunday by the Raiders and Derek Carr. I mean, it just shows how good this offense can be, right? I mean, they put up 40 points on the Chiefs. I wouldn't say the Chiefs uh, have a great defense, but it's a capable enough defense. And uh, I don't think it was flukish in any way. I mean, you could see upsets if you have like a plus three or four turnover margin. You get a couple of special teams touchdowns. Things can happen, but that didn't happen in this game. I mean, the Chiefs only turned it over once. The turnover margin was even. Uh, There wasn't anything flukish in the special teams game. So they just went up to Kansas City and they They were the better team for 60 minutes. Derek Carr was uh, fantastic, 346 passing yards. Um, You know, he only had one interception, so he limited his mistakes. They were very good on third down. And, uh, you know, the defense gave up 32 points. Like we've said, the Raiders defense isn't great. But, um, you know, every week this offense shows that it is really, really potent. And if things are clicking well for them, um, they can beat, as they just showed, any team in the NFL. I mean, the Chiefs are by far the best team in the NFL. And they got this win on the road. So a huge win for the Raiders. I mean, they go to three and two. They're really in the thick of the playoff hunt. Had they lost this one, uh, they would have been, you know, under 500 and in some trouble. So I think uh, more than anything, this shows them um, that they can play with the NFL's best if they bring their best game. And I think that was needed after that loss at home to the Bills where they just didn't play a very good second half. So uh, a huge win. I mean, certainly the biggest win in John Gruden's second era with the Raiders. And you could say this is their big win in 10 years. I mean, since they went to the Super Bowl, their biggest regular season win, um, you know, uh, in the last decade for this franchise. Now, looking forward, uh, when losses happen to elite teams like this, sometimes it really lights a fire under them. And you look at the schedule, who do the Chiefs have next? But on Monday night football, they play the Buffalo Bills. I mean, if you're the Bills, are you, are you like, really, Raiders? Good. Thanks for ticking them off. Yeah, I mean, it's not ideal, right? I mean, the Chiefs are probably going to be pretty upset for that game, but maybe the Bills learn something from this blueprint um, that they can do offensively in the matchup because the Bills offense is pretty potent as well. So maybe they were able to go out there and kind of follow what the Raiders did. I'm just hoping that game is played. I mean, this Bills game uh, against the Titans has been moved back to this Tuesday. So hopefully that game gets in and then they're on schedule to play the Chiefs because that Chiefs-Bills game was originally scheduled for this uh, upcoming Thursday, but obviously can't play a game on Tuesday and Thursday. So the NFL schedule is already being ripped up to tatters as is. I think just if the Bills get that game in, I'll at least be happy that everything's kind of on course. But 
but um, you know, maybe it shows some vulnerabilities to the chiefs. I mean, everyone kind of assumed that this is the team that's going to go out and win back-to-back Super Bowls, but you know, they showed in this matchup that they're mortal. It's going to be hard to stop this offense, but the key to doing it and what the Raiders did is they had a lot of ball possession offense. They didn't give Patrick Mahomes a ton of opportunities and they missed on a couple of plays to chiefs early in the game and put them behind and they just couldn't catch up late. Yeah. It's, it's funny how, momentum can swing and sometimes a loss can be a good thing for a team and nobody wants to hear that but maybe a team's rolling chugging along and then a dose of reality and suddenly practices I would imagine practice this week for Kansas City is going to be a little the, the pads are going to crack a little bit more you're going to see guys mad because I mean most I mean they're competitors they're athletes they, they want they are paid very very well to do what they do but they hate to lose they all hate to lose speaking of losing and losing badly san francisco i i I had to turn it off chris i had to turn it off uh jimmy garoppolo i think they brought him back too early i'm still as a third generation niner fan i'm still not sold on jimmy g i I still think that the contract came way too early i'm still not sold on it but you could tell he could not push off of that right ankle and you know when i was happy to see cj bethard go in uh, if you're a Niner fan right now, what hope do you have? I mean, it's been ugly. Uh, now they've lost at home to the Dolphins, the Eagles, and the Cardinals, and none of those are, are great teams. So, uh, yeah, maybe they rest Garoppolo back. He certainly didn't look like he was 100% and then goes to the bench at halftime and, uh, you know, probably to save him from any future further injury. But, uh, it doesn't look good for this team. I'm not saying that they can't make the playoffs, but there are clearly some issues at offensive line. And there are clearly some uh, issues at the quarterback position. Uh, the defense looked really, really bad last week. And, and injuries are playing, obviously, a huge part in this. But um, you can't use that as an excuse. Everybody says next man up, and the next man up has not been as good as the man who went down. So uh, it, it's uh, I picked the 49ers to make it to the Super Bowl. Now, you know, I thought they were going to be healthy. I thought they uh, had what it took to be able to go back to the Super Bowl. And it's really hard to go to back-to-back Super Bowls. That hasn't happened very often outside of the Patriots. But this just looks like the team from two years ago rather than the team from last year. And, uh, you know, Kyle Shanahan's a very good coach, and I'm sure he'll get things turned around. But um, I think that was probably the most difficult loss of of the season. Uh, You know, obviously they lost to the Eagles and the Cardinals, but those are both very close games. And this one was not very close to a team in Miami that hasn't been great this season. So, um, you know, a lot of questions around their their football facility at this point. Uh, How do you get back to the, the kind of football that we saw them playing last year? Give credit to Fitzmagic. Brian Fitzpatrick was outstanding. 22 of 28 for 350 and three touchdowns. But yeah, the 49ers, look at the division. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm a Niner fan. I can't see him making the playoffs. The division is outstanding. I mean, you got the Seahawks at 5-0. and you got the Rams at 4-1. The Niners are going to have to really find a way now. All right, do you just sit Garoppolo and go, all right, Jimmy, you can't tell us that you're feeling all right when you look like that and go out there like that and you can't push off. You're getting sacked way too many times. And I, I credit that to Jimmy not getting rid of the football and the Niners offensive line just isn't as good as, as it has been in the past, you know? So uh, the, 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 the thing that really disappointed me on Sunday, and I am not a Cowboys fan at all, but I'm a fan of Dak Prescott. Um, I'm a fan of the type of person I think he is in the locker room, the type of person I think he is off the field. And that injury, when I saw it happen and I saw him pick his foot up, it reminded me of playing American Legion ball and a teammate slide in the second base in front of me. And it's the same thing. It was a dislocated foot and a fractured ankle. And I, I felt so bad for him. You know, I mean, you could see it in his eyes. He was crying. He was upset. Um, this changes. But I mean, if you're the Cowboys, at least you have somebody like Andy Dalton as your backup. 
Yeah, and I think the worry was, what does this mean for Dak Prescott's future? Because yeah. this is a guy who didn't sign a long-term deal this offseason. That was kind of the talk of the summer in Dallas is that uh, they just couldn't come to an agreement. And he decided to play under the franchise tag and play it out and try and maximize his yearly revenue. And uh, obviously, at this point, uh, you know, the medical community has advanced so much that he probably will be able to come back. We also saw Alex Smith, who literally almost lost his leg uh, you know, a couple of years ago after getting sacked, uh, returned to the field this last weekend. So the thought is that he will be able to come back. But just given how gruesome that injury looked, uh, you just had to worry about a guy who could have probably cashed in for 100 million guaranteed this off not to go that route and then you could see his career just potentially go like that so um yeah i mean the cowboys aren't going to do anything this year because their defense is not good enough uh andy dalton is a solid quarterback in the nfl and i'm sure he'll be able to put up some numbers but my my first thought was what does this mean for Dak's long-term future because as you mentioned it seems like he's done everything great off the field obviously he's overachieved on it after being a mid-round draft pick uh you know the, the cowboys hadn't had a great record but he was playing like an mvp this season their offense had looked spectacular with him uh, and now he has to think, OK, what does he have to do rehab wise just to get back to the player that he's been the last couple of years? And that that to me is the most tragic element is what this means for you know his next five to 10 to 15 years, because he would have made three hundred million dollars over the course of his career. And now he's already banked probably around 40 million dollars, which is not you know a little sum of money. But, uh, you know, this certainly uh, hurts his future in terms of earnings. Yeah. And, and that's that's the reality of his, you know, I mean, 40 million. I mean, come on any one of us would be like, thank you. And my family is set up basically forever, but this is a, an athlete who had a chance to basically triple that and, and basically set up everything forever and ever and ever. But uh, yeah, I just, I, I really felt for him because you could tell this is something that devastated him and Cowboys fans took to social media and they were talking about pay Dak now pay Dak and players and teammates, former players, opposing players. Uh, hey, take care of Dak, take care of Dak. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. I hope that the Cowboys do the right thing. And I hope that he, uh, he comes back, but this is an injury that is really hard to come back from. I mean, it just, it, it's nasty. Monday night football, uh, Chargers and Saints. I like this matchup because we're going to see a future hall of famer take on some of the young blood in Justin Herbert and the Chargers. Uh, this should be interesting on Monday night. Yeah, I usually lean Saints when they're at home. So I would pick them, but Justin Herbert has acquitted himself very well. Uh, you know, I think he's been the best rookie quarterback in the NFL this year, even a little bit better than Joe Burrow. Obviously, he was pressed in the action when Tyrod Taylor uh, picked up that rib injury in the, you know, the warmups before the second game. And now he's won the job based on how he's played. Uh, so uh, he has definitely looked very advanced. He's a very athletic kid, six foot six, very strong arm. So uh, very different than Drew Brees, who's, you know, doing it at six foot with limited arm strength at this point in his career. But uh, like you said, it's one of the up and comers versus one of the best to ever play the position. So it should be a really fun matchup to watch. Saints are a seven point favorite and this one over under is 49 and a half. So yeah, I like the Saints. Saints done out of Monday Night Football 515 scheduled kickoff on ESPN. Coming up next year on NSN Daily, Chris's Wolfpack position previews continue when it comes to football. This time we'll delve into the running back room. It's coming up next. This Wolfpack update is brought to you by Renown Health. Welcome back to NSN Daily. Chris uh, continues his position previews as we uh, are just literally two weeks away from uh, Wolfpack football season kicking off this time around. It is the running back room. And Chris, you want to talk about a one-two punch? They called themselves peanut butter and jelly. Uh, Devontae Lee and Toa Tawa. I don't know how it can get better than that, not just in the Mountain West, but around the West Coast. These two guys are just bulldozers. Yeah, so it's an interesting position. 
of last year. I mean, Toa Tawa ranked uh, second to last in terms of yards per carry among people who had at least 100 carries. But I think a lot of it's just the offensive line. Nevada's offensive line could not open up very many holes in the run game, one of the 10 worst in the nation in run blocking, according to the advanced metrics. So you can look at the running backs and say, okay, well, they kind of had a you know subpar season. Nevada ranked bottom 10 in the nation in yards per carry and yards per game. And, you know, just pin it on the running back because it's their job to get yards. But I, I feel like these are really good running backs. Uh, Toa Tawa was a four-star recruit. He was the Mountain West freshman of the year. He uh, almost ran for 900 yards that first season at Nevada. And then Devontae Lee, uh, just, uh, you know, a bowling ball is the best way to describe him. He's just exceptionally hard to take down and has proven to be a really good goal line back. He has 14 touchdowns and less than 100 career carries. So if he gets the ball, he's probably going to get into the end zone. Um, but you do want to see more production from that group. And I don't want to pin it all on the offensive line, which hasn't been great during their first two years at Nevada. But this has been an issue for the Wolfpack. They haven't had a thousand yard rusher under Jay Norvell. You're talking about three straight years. The last time Nevada went three straight years without a thousand yard rusher, you got to go back to 1990 through 94 when they were throwing the ball all over the place. So they didn't run the ball a lot. So uh, Jay Norvell wants to run the ball. I mean, he's running the air raid, which people would think, okay, he's going to throw it a ton. But last year, Nevada, 47% uh, of their plays were running plays. That was up from 44% in Jay Norvell's first year. So they're increasingly leaning on the run but they haven't been productive with that run game. So the backs are being asked a lot of them, given the quality of blocking that they're getting in front of them. But, um, you know, they need to be better as well. I don't think they can just finger point at the offensive line and say, you know, this is why we're not being as productive as we would hope to be. But, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. These, these are top-end uh, running backs in the Mountain West. I would certainly put them in the top half of the Mountain West. And hopefully this is the year where they get some blocking and they're able to maybe not go for 1,000 yards because they're only playing for eight games, but have a larger impact on uh, the outcome of the game by being able to you know, get a consistent run game and do some play action off of that. For, for folks that don't maybe understand the air raid offense, the air raid isn't just step back and chuck it deep every single play, even though you know you hear air raid, you think that is. When it comes to the running back, explain to maybe somebody who doesn't understand what the running back has to be in this air raid off. Title air raid actually may suggest. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you look at Toa Tawa and he catches the ball a ton. So there's a passing element to your running backs in the air raid. I mean, this is a guy who caught 52 passes the last two seasons, 35 last year. Um, so they're basically just trying to get the ball into the hands of the running back in space, which typically that's done uh, from under center and you're just handing it off to him. But, uh, you know, Toa Tawa definitely got his hands on balls in the receiving game. That's very important in the blocking game as well. And I think both of these guys are above average uh, pass protectors when it comes to that. And like you said, there are just a lot of different ways you can run the air raid. You can do the Mike Leach system and throw it 80% of the time. Uh, and then you can do it how Nevada's trying to do it, which is blending it with the power run game. And I think uh, people kind of talk about when Jay Norvell took over the play calling from Matt Mummy uh, after the or before the New Mexico game last year and how Nevada's offense kind of changed. You look at the points per game and it didn't take a huge jump, but they were much, much better in the red zone because they did a lot more of their rhino package. You have two or three tight ends in there and you're just trying to ram it down the throat of your opponent. And that's why Nevada's offense looked a lot better after Jay Norvell started calling the plays is because when they got into the red zone, they were scoring touchdowns with that run game. Uh, and that's what they want to do. They want to have a physical air raid, which is kind of a oxymoron to a lot of people. But the running back in Nevada's offense is exceptionally important because of how Jay Norvell wants to play, especially when they get inside the 20. So 
these two guys are very, very valuable. Uh, obviously, we've talked about the depth issues. They only had three scholarship running backs before adding uh, a transfer from Utah State a couple of weeks ago, Morian Walker Jr. So there's going to be a lot asked of them. Toa Tala had the second most touches of any player in the Mountain West last year when you add up his rushes and his reception. So he's going to be asked to do a lot. And I think Devontae Lee is going to push him as well. Now a year removed from his ACL uh, reconstruction. Uh, wouldn't be shocked if he actually earned some starts because I think he was the more effective runner between the two last season. Depth. That's the D word here. I mean, we're, we're concerned about it. You lose a Toa, you lose a Devontae Lee. Running backs get beat up. It's it's the, one of the most attacked positions on the field. I mean, the quarterback is what everybody's trying to get, but the running backs who gets who gets punched in the mouth pretty much every every down. When you look at this room, up until just a couple of weeks ago when Morgan Walker Jr. joined the team, there were only three other running backs on the team. And you're talking about two freshmen and a transfer. Out of those three, we talked about Maureen Walker Jr. The other three, you're talking about Avery Morrow, Terrell Johnson, and Wesley Comer. Any of those three jump out at you as, all right, should somebody go down or – should this be a guy that, okay, Nevada fans need to need to recognize this is going to be somebody who can contribute? Yeah, I think it's Avery Morrow. So he's a true freshman from Seattle and coach Matt Mummy has really raved about his breakaway speed. And I think that's something this group has lacked. Toa is the fastest straight line runner, but you don't have a 4-4 guy in that backfield who's just going to, you know, you give him a little crease and he's going to go 80 yards. A guy like a Lamford Mark uh, who would just take it to the house. And even Vitawa didn't get caught from behind very often. He had a good, good amount of speed as well, as did Don Jackson. So uh, I think this is a guy as a true freshman who you could see playing just like Toa and Devontae Lee did as true freshman. And, uh, you know, that speed is just a separator for him. I would also mention Wesley Comer. He is a walk-on for Morgan, but this guy rushed for more than 2,000 yards, scored 37 touchdowns as a senior. He broke his hand in the first game, so he played his entire season with a club on his hand. His team won a state championship going 13-0. Whenever you put up those kind of numbers for a state championship team, I think you're a legit player. Now, he doesn't have the speed. That's what held him back from getting FBS scholarship offers. But between those two, and then you add Morian Walker Jr., I think Nevada is in a pretty decent spot from a depth perspective, but you are 100% right. I mean, we saw Kelton Moore basically missed all of last year because he had a sprained ankle that he dealt with the entire season. You're a running back. You get hit on every single play. You're getting taken to the ground unless you score a touchdown in every single play. Um, so you need three or four guys that you feel comfortable putting in there. Uh, just because of the attrition you typically see. And, you know, Nevada going into an eight-game season, they're not going to be any buys. They're not going to be able to get healthy, uh, you know, during uh, two buys during the season like they previously had. So these guys are going to get beat up, and it's nice to be able to have guys behind you who you can trust to put in the game. The position previews continue. What's the next uh, squad that you're looking at? Going to wide receivers, the best position on the team in my estimation. So we'll uh, break them down on the website today and on the show tomorrow. Sounds good. Check it out on NevadaSportsNet.com for Chris's full write-up. And, of course, before that one, for running backs, he broke down the quarterback position. Some guy named Carson is playing that position, uh, and hopefully he stays upright for all eight games coming up this season. Coming up next here in NSN Daily, Reno 1868 advances in dominating fashion over the LA Galaxy 2 on Saturday night. We'll hear from the guys coming up next. Well, it was a raucous 250 fans uh, on hand of Saturday night, Chris. It was great to see uh, that game on uh, Nevada Sportsnet. Alex Margulies was on the play-by-play call as Reno 1868 FC advanced, winning a dominant 4-1 performance over LA Galaxy 2. Corey Herzog with a brace, and that one uh, won a home playoff game. First time in club history, and it was, it was great to see at least 250 fa- uh, fans in the stands. 
Yeah, and I think they got off to a great start. Uh, obviously, we've talked, and I'm sure they've talked, or at least heard about the kind of postseason curse and the struggles to advance. So for them to be able to score a goal from Kevin Partita in the opening minutes, I think was huge. It was a clear mistake by LA Galaxy's defense, and they took yeah. advantage. And, you know, you go up 1-0, okay, you can take a, a little bit of a deeper breath. You don't want to take your foot off the pedal in any way. But, okay, now we've got our feet under us. We've got this lead. We know we're the better team, and now we can just play relaxed and comfortably. And that's what they were able to do. And this was, yeah, this was a dominant effort they were clearly the better team on the field and uh you know now they're part of the elite eight in the usl championship tournament and um you know just a good way to start off their postseason as the top seed in the uh, tournament yeah reno outshot la uh, 19 to 7 um 12 of them right on goal but uh this is a team right now that you can just see how much they like playing with each other they they like playing the beautiful game together as a team. Corey Herzog might be my MVP. I mean, he's probably not going to be everybody's pick, but he's a veteran and he's a guy that shares the soccer ball. He wants to get somebody else involved and, and finds himself in advantageous positions. But uh, now, I mean, I was, I had already penciled in, it was going to be Reno versus Sac Republic in the second round. Sac loses in the first round on a golden goal. This is Maradona-esque where a player literally punched the ball into the net. And of course, there is no video review in the United Soccer League. And SAC fans exploded over this, as they should have. I understand it. But now Reno's going to play Phoenix Rising, a team that they had had zero success against until this year. It seems like a good draw. I mean, I know we in our pre-meeting, Alex Margulis was saying Phoenix is probably the more talented team. And I will definitely defer on him when it comes to USL insight. But I mean, clearly Sacramento had Reno's number this year. The only team that beat them this year. I mean, they were uh, two wins against Reno and two draws. So, um, you know, I figured that Sacramento would be the more difficult opponent. But, you know, Phoenix is super talented. As we've kind of mentioned, they have a much bigger purse. Um, that's a team that's trying to get up to the MLS level. So they invest a ton of money into the program. Um, and yeah, the way that, that Sacramento lost is just bad. Uh, you yeah. don't want your game-winning goal to be clearly an illegal handball into the net and not be able to have the review system, the VAR system that MLS and the majority of the leagues across the uh, the globe use. So disappointing for them. It just shows you how thin uh, the difference between a win and a loss can be. But, um, you know, it, it feels like an advantageous draw for Reno. I mean, they've certainly already taken care of business against Phoenix this year in their one match. So they got to feel comfortable about that. And Phoenix will be down one of their better players who suspended because of a uh, uh, a gay slur he used against San Diego loyal player uh, a couple of weeks ago. So uh, it, it's, you're not going to have any easy matches from this point forward. And certainly Phoenix uh, has the ability to go into Reno and win a match. Uh, and they've done it in the past. But, uh, you know, for me, I feel like this is probably the easier of the two, just based on how hard Sacramento played Reno and how much those two programs kind of dislike each other. We'll bring Alex Margulies in here in just a second. But our own Shannon Kelly caught up with head coach Ian Russell, Kevin Partita and Corey Herzog after the victory Saturday night. We've lost twice here on our home field. It's been frustrating. 2017 and last year, 2019. Um, I felt this game coming in, the mentality was right. I could tell in the locker room before we got on the field. And I think we played well from the first minute to the 91st. You know, Galaxy 2, they've come out of a really tough group. Um, so I knew they were going to be tough. They've been battle tested against Phoenix, San Diego, Las Vegas, Orange County. Um, but I knew that if we played well, to play the way we like to play, that we're going to have a good result. And um, we had a good week of training. The guys were sharp. and. Like I said, you could tell in the first minute we were ready to go. I think it was more than anything, it was the way we won. So 
definitely excited about that. Excited to, you know, just motivate you to work another week. And honestly, the, the fans were even better than, than we expected, despite the fact that there's only 250 this week. Last year, everybody saw their heads down and everything. So it was a huge win just to come in here and especially put four up on them. I mean, uh, they had a great forward, Augustine Williams, who scored a lot of goals during the year. And I don't think he had a shot on goal today. So credit to our defense. I mean, holding him down, unlucky on the free kick, but I thought we did very well. You guys knew that this was going to be a tough challenge. What do you think was the difference maker for you guys tonight to come out on top? I think we came out with more energy, more fight, more everything. Like we won every battle. We won the second balls. We won the first balls. We we're just a step ahead, I think, of everything. So um, I just think we need to bring that on Saturday and we can make a little run on here. Alex Margulies joining us here, play-by-play uh, -play voice of the uh, Reno 1868 FC, Reno Aces, uh, exploring our backyard, road tripping, uh, and whatever shows he uh, will be inventing here in the fall and the winter. Uh, Al, tell me what it was like uh, being in the stadium. Chris and I couldn't be in the stadium. You were one of the few that are allowed in there, and to actually hear the drums and to see the people excited and chanting, it had to be thrilling. Yeah, it was awesome, man. It was great to, to just get some energy back into the stadium. And, and even though it was only 250 people, you really did feel – the passion, the drums, it did add a lot to the atmosphere. And it was great to, to have the fans finally get to see this team up close in person for the first time since earlier this season. So it was a real treat uh, to get the fans in there. And, and what a performance by the boys. I mean, they really put it on LA Galaxy too. Uh, I, I just thought the way that they came after them and, and the way that they prepared and, and just the, the tenaciousness that they approached that game with and, and really – came out and, and made a statement and, uh, you know, left no doubt as to who should advance. And they advanced to face Phoenix. Uh, what are your thoughts on this matchup? Obviously, they played and Reno came out on top. Uh, what kind of challenges does Phoenix present? I, I think they provide a huge, huge challenge. I mean, I have a lot of respect for this Phoenix team. Uh, they battled with Sacramento and, and had that uh, crazy finish to move on, uh, punching their way uh, into the Western Conference uh, Semifinals, uh, if you haven't seen that, so literally punching the ball into the back of the net. Um, that was uh, something else, and, and you wish they could have, you know, taken a look at that one. But, um, you know, it, they're a really talented team. I mean, Solomon Asante is, is one of the toughest offensive players in the league. Uh, Dadashov is, is really, really good. So they provide an amazing attack. And, and so when you look at these two teams, I mean, at the end of the regular season, it was Reno and Phoenix tied for the most goals in the league with 43. So both teams are going to play a super high pace. They're going to really try and score goals. And I think it's going to make for a really exciting soccer game. I mean, two teams that, you know, aren't simply going to kind of sit back and let the game come to them. They are going to push and they are going to try and score a lot of goals. And, and you know, in, in the first meeting between these two teams, it, it was a great match and, and Reno was able to prevail two to one. So you know, we'll see if they can they can do it again and, and, and make it uh, further into the playoffs than they ever have as a franchise. This would be a huge deal for Reno if they can get a win uh, to get into these uh, these Western Conference uh, uh, finals for the first time in team history and, and move one close one step closer to hosting a USL championship game. Alex, we had President Eric Edelstein, uh, president of the franchise on the show last week, talking about the restrictions and all the hoops they've tried to jump through. Well, now they've got another week to talk with the health district and, and try and get there. How optimistic are you that they can go from that 250 to maybe that 700 number for next Saturday night? I, I hope they can. I mean, it, it's just everything we're hearing. It just seems like the Washoe County Health District doesn't really want to participate in the process. And, and it, it's unfortunate because Reno 
as a franchise the, between Doug and, and Eric and that entire front office has done so much work to try and safely provide a venue for their fans and to do it at the maximum capacity that the government is allowing. And that's 10%. That's a directive from the state's office, from Governor Sisolak. And so for me, I mean, if the governor is saying you can have a stadium operate at 10%, I think that they deserve the right to be able to do that. And they have certainly done everything that has been asked of them to do that. And, and so I really hope that, you know, the Washoe County Health District, they said they didn't basically didn't have time uh, to deal with it before. I, I'm not sure how much I buy that. Uh, but I, I really hope uh, that, that that comes out. You know, I'm an optimist. So, you know, I'll have an optimistic mindset about it until I'm told otherwise. But uh, it would be a real shame if we didn't get that full 10% because it would really be a big boost to this team to get seven, 800 fans into the ballpark and, and help cheer them on and, and push them forward against a really talented Phoenix team and give them a little bit more, you know, of, of a home field advantage that they've earned this year. They earned, you know, to be the number one seed and to have a home field advantage. We really hope that they can actually get that kind of home field feel by getting their fans into the stadium. We're going to have that game for you right here on Nevada Sportsnet. Alex Margulies will be on the play-by-play -play call 6 p.m. on Saturday against Phoenix Rising. Of course, if any news comes out when it comes to fans and, and access, we will have it for you right here on the show. Thanks, Al. Appreciate the time, man. Sure thing. Coming up next here on, Re, on, on I'm almost said 1868 Daily. It's, we've been talking about them so much. NSN Daily, the Los Angeles Lakers hoisted a trophy over the weekend. Is there an asterisk involved? I'm the biggest critic of this team. I'll let you know what I think next. You know what? I have to give complete credit to the NHL and the NBA for pulling off what they pulled off. I, I really hope somewhere down the line, Chris, and we'll get to this in a second, people really understand what these players and officials and front office media gave up over the last few months to be in that bubble and, and pull off NHL and NBA seasons. Uh, the Lakers win the NBA title and uh, take out the heat. I mean, I think we all saw this coming. It was uh it was, it was a good road for the Lakers to take, and they took full advantage, and uh, they win the first title uh, since 2010. They celebrated in the streets outside of Staples Center last night. Does this give you a little reprieve that your, your team won the NBA title this year? Yeah, it was a good feeling for sure. After game five, I was pretty upset. And I don't usually get too emotionally involved in sports anymore because I know it's silly to, to get like not be able to go to sleep because your team lost and you have yeah. nothing to do with them losing or winning. Um, so yeah, it was nice just to be able to relax after halftime uh, yesterday's game because that thing was already over. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just marvel at what LeBron James does. I know there's always the argument between him and Michael Jordan, but like, let's just sit back and enjoy the greatness and not worry about if he's the best ever or the second or the third best ever. I mean, this guy's 35 years old and he's, you know, goes out and averages 30 points, 12 rebounds, eight and a half assists, shoots 60% from the field, 42% from three. He's the best player in the game at 35. And it's amazing to see, you can basically book him for a triple double with 30 points every time he steps on the court in the NBA finals. And that's just ridiculous. That's not, nobody's ever done that before. And he just does it every time he gets to the finals. He's been in 10 finals now. Uh, and it's just really incredible that whatever team he's on automatically becomes a championship caliber team. Uh, and when he's not on the team, they, they tend to be really, really bad. So, um, you know, just fun to be able to watch his career over the last uh, 17 years and 
uh, it's been cool to see him join my favorite NBA team, the Lakers, and kind of put a little bit of history, uh, you know, after the Shaq and the Kobe and after the Magic and the James Worthy and the Kareem and after the George Mike and, uh, and they, you know, with this one, they win their 17th NBA championship to tie the Celtics as well. I know some people are giving them 16 and a half because of the scenario it was in, but uh, yeah, no, it was just cool to watch this run and cool to see LeBron win another title. I am the furthest thing away from a Lakers fan. Um, I'm not an NBA fan anymore. I was, I grew up in Northern California. My family had, had, had landed in El Dorado County. So when the Sacramento Kings moved from Kansas City to Sacramento in the mid 80s, instantly became Kings fans. Otis Thorpe, Reggie Theus, LaSalle Thompson, Eddie Johnson. I mean, those guys were the guys that I remember. The powder blue unis. Mm -hmm. We hated the Lakers. We were supposed to hate the Lakers. And then there was the Tim Donahue stuff that happens. And 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 watching that in the, in the 2000s, well, the Kings threw the best thing they, that they could at the Lakers. And Robert Ory tosses in a three from the top of the key because Vlade flips it out to him. I'm supposed to hate the Lakers. I'm not going to put an asterisk on it. It's an NBA title. Are you going to do that to... To, to Tampa, are you going to do that to the Lightning? Are you going to do that to them too? You can't. They fought through it. I don't care if it was a cupcake scheduled through the playoffs, which a lot of people on social media are saying. They didn't have to play the Bucks. You know, it's a championship. They went out and did it. If the Giants were still in it and Giants fans went out and saw the Giants win the World Series this year, they'd be celebrating on Market Street. If the Dodgers go out and win, they ought to have a socially distanced parade and be able to do it. It's still a championship in my eyes. I just give credit to the leagues, Chris, and the players and the people involved, top to bottom. I, I've, I've been following a reporter who was in the bubble in Florida, and he's like, you know what? It's going to be nice to be able to be able to go home and hug my wife. Mm -hmm. And I went, Ur. you know, because you don't even think about that, that these people have been kept from their families for months on end, and, and you forget about that, you know? So... That's the thing to me is I hope in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, I hope we're, one, I hope we're still here. Um, and two, I hope we're still playing sports. And I hope that we go back and look at this and recognize and respect how tough it was to do this and how big of a, big of a feat it was. Yeah, and I don't think it'll ever happen again because of that sacrifice of being away from your family. I mean, you're telling these guys that you don't get to see your kids for three or four months. Eric Spolstra has two kids. Uh, the Miami Heat coach didn't get to see them for three or four months. LeBron James' uh, family wasn't there, didn't get to see his kids, missed his uh, daughter going to kindergarten uh, for the first time, uh, you know, missed his uh, middle son growing up and his older son, you know, playing games. So uh, it was definitely a huge uh, responsibility and sacrifice for them to go out there. And yeah, I, I understand they weren't playing on home courts. They weren't playing with fans. Uh, if anything, that made the Lakers course harder uh, because this is a team that would have had home court advantage and would have benefited from that. Yeah, they didn't get the Clippers who were the best team in the Western Conference outside of them. Yeah, they didn't get the Bucks, who had the best record in in the NBA, but maybe that shows how difficult it was to be able to advance in a tournament like this because these great teams weren't able to move on and the Lakers because of LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and some of these role players were able to make it. And I think the Miami Heat were a great story. This was a five seed and maybe the bubble helps them because they would have been on the road for every series, but they go out and they sweep the Pacers. They beat the Bucks and only lose one game. They beat the Celtics and only lose two games. And then they gave the Lakers a heck of a run. I mean, Jimmy Butler's game five will uh, forever 
be remembered as one of the greatest games in NBA Finals history. His game three uh, in the same light. This guy was uh, doing 40-point triple-doubles. So, uh, you know, they clearly ran out of gas in game six. They didn't have anything left to give. But that team had a ton of fight, and uh, the games were very enjoyable to watch, uh, even from my perspective, even losing game five. Um, just seeing how hard that team played and how much Jimmy Butler gave his team to kind of rise up to that superstardom. Um, it, it was more than worthwhile from the fan perspective for sure. And yeah, I would not attach an asterisk to this or any title one during this year, because there are different sacrifices that have to be made that to me make this even more difficult. Uh, if the Dodgers or the Rays win the world series, you're talking about ha them having to go through an additional playoff round. And then all of the sacrifices they have to make to basically stay in a team hotel all day uh, and throughout the season to have the discipline not to get COVID-19 and pass it on to your team. So it's definitely different, but uh, I'm with you. I wouldn't put any asterisks on any titles won during this year. And JaVale McGee quietly wins his third NBA championship ring. Unbelievable. <laughs> Tied for 40th all time uh, in championship rings, won a title three of the last four years. Nobody would have guessed that when JaVale left here after his nope. sophomore season. Now, he didn't actually play any finals minutes, which kind of sucks because he started all 68 games for the Lakers in the regular season. They tended to go small in the postseason, but uh, I mean, he's carved out an amazing career. This is a guy who's going to play 15 years in the NBA, win at least three titles, bank at least $75 million. Um, so kudos to JaVale. Uh, you know, he, he, I'm sure he would have loved to have been on the court, but he seems like he's turned into the total team guy. You know, he would get, usually give you about five minutes at the beginning of the first half, five minutes at halftime uh, throughout this season. And to see him be a three-time NBA champion, the only NBA champ in Wolfpack history is, is really, really cool to see. If you had told me at the moment that JaVale McGee punted a basketball at San Jose State up into the Raptors, that that guy's going to play 15 years in the NBA and he's going to win at least three NBA titles. I just said, you're nuts, but uh, congratulations to JaVale. Uh, hey, you know what? Anyone like that is, is good for the program. So uh, congrats to the Lakers on winning their 17th NBA championship. Coming up after the break, your Wolfpack update. We have a basketball schedule for Nevada men's and women's hoops. We're going to talk about that next. We're still waiting word on uh, times and kickoffs and television schedule for Nevada football, but a little news on Nevada basketball, men's and women's um, Mount West conference schedule has been released. Chris, anytime we get an update right now in 2020, it's a good thing. Anytime we get any news right now, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. So they're playing an 18 game schedule. They're actually going to be going to a 20 game schedule in conference next year. So this will be the last year they do 18 games. Um, and, you know, Nevada got a tough schedule. They only play Wyoming once and they only play Air Force once. Wyoming finished last in the Mountain West last year. Air Force finished third to last. Um, so in this format, you play eight teams round robin, so home and away. And then you get two teams, you only play them once each. So uh, typically one of the better teams, you only get once each and one of the worst teams. But Nevada got a pretty difficult schedule. I'm sure they're not going to bellyache over it. They just want to play basketball this year. But I also found it interesting that the last game of their regular season uh, is against San Diego State at home. And typically that's kind of been a, a game that they've pit uh, a lot because typically you want to put your better teams playing on the last week of the regular season. So those games mean a lot. So maybe the Mountain West schedule makers think that those are maybe the two teams to beat in the Mountain West. I don't have Nevada quite on that tier, but uh, it, it did catch my eye that they did make that the regular season finale. Maybe the schedule makers think that the Martin twins have a couple of years of eligibility left or something. I don't know. I agree that I saw that and I'm like, 
usually they're kind of they want to make it a soap opera they want to make it exciting the last week two weeks of the season i went that's interesting maybe maybe we're too close to the fire to, to see the flames and maybe nevada has that type of respect in the conference but you know and it's not like the cupboard's bare at nevada but this will be a challenge i mean this team's going to have to overachieve if they're going to win win a conference title yeah, I, I think the Grant Sherfield edition is a huge deal yeah. because Nevada had an issue with playmaking with guard play entering the season. Desmond Cambridge is a transfer from Brown and he's a very athletic wing player, but I don't think he's the kind of guy like Jalen Harris where you just put the ball in his hands and say, go make plays for yourself or your teammates. He had more turnovers than assists uh, at the college level. Grant Sherfield can play the point guard position and get you into good sets. And I think that was the biggest issue with this team. They're actually very good in the front court. I think they could have one of the Mountain West's best front court. Um, I think the shooting is a little bit questionable. And I thought the backcourt uh, back play was questionable. And Grant Sherfield fills both of those voids. So I think that's a huge boost. But I, I still don't put him in my top five. I mean, Boise State is in some preseason top 25s. That team's going to be loaded. San Diego State is very, very good. UNLV has a ton of talent, but they all kind of came from different areas. So we don't know how long it's going to take to gel. Uh, Colorado State had a ton of good young players last year, and they'll be good. And then Utah State's been superb the last couple of seasons. Those are my top five. And then I have Nevada six kind of in a second tier. But Steve Offer is going to get the most out of his count. So I, I will 100% bank on that. And I think uh, Nevada will be solid this year. I just don't know if it's going to be at that level where it can compete against those top-tier teams in the Mountain West. Yeah, they may not have the talent on paper that people see on paper. But this is a team that, one, you're right, Coach Alford and Craig Neal are going to get the most out of this guy. these guys. They're going to get the most juice out of the orange. And on a night-by-night -night basis, this team will not be outcoached. You're not going to outcoach Craig Neal and Steve Alford. They're, you're just not going to. But, uh, yeah, 18-game schedule this year for Mountain West women's and men's basketball. Very, very eager to see that. Coming up next here on NSN Daily as we wrap things up. We lost a member of the Big Red Machine. We'll look back on the life and career of Joe Morgan next. Wrapping things up on NSN Daily. And, you know, I mean, so many people for years, decades, hundreds of years are going to say, man, that is so 2020. But uh, uh, to lose Hall of Famer Joe Morgan on a Sunday afternoon in the fall at 77 years old, uh, member of the Big Red Machine, Hall of Famer. Um, talk about a career, Chris. Yeah, two-time MVP. I mean, he's in the argument for best second baseman ever, certainly of the more modern era, if you get past Honus Wagner. Uh, was an amazing player, won a couple of championships, five-time Gold Glover, 10-time All-Star, uh, All-Star game MVP. And, you know, it, before my day, he was playing, but I just remember him kind of being the voice along with John Miller of Sunday Night Baseball. Like, he was kind of my indoctrination into loving baseball. I was just listening to him call games on the marquee game of the weekend. So, uh, 77 years old uh, from the Oakland area originally. So very, very sad to see him pass at this age. Um, but it has kind of been the story of this year. I mean, uh, Bob Gibson, uh, Whitey Ford, uh, Lefty Grove. Uh, I mean, just a ton of Tom Seaver, just a ton of guys, uh, famous, famous baseball players, some of the greatest ever passing away in the last few months. You can add Lou Brock and Al Kaline to that list, all Hall of Famers who, who died this last year. And you know, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's just part of it. You know, I mean, you, you, you see your heroes and you grow up with your heroes and, and then you have to say goodbye to your heroes at times. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on the, the Sunday night baseball call is fantastic, Chris, because I remember so fondly, uh, you know, the, the golden voice of John Miller and then just the, the low tone of Joe Morgan kind of laying out that this is the way baseball is played. 
That'll do it for us here on NSN Daily. For Chris Murray and Anthony Resnick, I'm Brian Samudia. We'll see you tomorrow.